Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about media and digital production. Uh, your questions drive the first hour, so go ahead and throw those in. Second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on, and today we're really excited to have Rob Bridget on. Uh, Robert is uh, Rob is a uh, sound designer, and, uh, and they um, have been a uh, audio director, mix supervisor, sound designer, recordist uh, since uh, starting in 1993, and uh, the new the author of the new book, Working with Sound. So Rob's going to be on talking about that. It's a really great book. I've been going through it, and uh, I think it's going to be a great second hour. So uh, take a look at the take a look at the book during the first hour while you're asking questions, and uh, ask those questions uh, to us uh, for the second hour. And otherwise, we'll get started there uh, with Rob uh, in the uh, in the second hour. So go ahead. Let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Bill, what do we have? First one comes from Bo Cordell in Charleston, South Carolina. Bo asks, what's the group recommendation for sticky-backed Velcro? I have a lot of electronic gack to secure under desks or to walls. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Well, um, Dexter, we had these huge uh, units that did video playback. They weighed about a pound and a half, and I had to stick them underneath desks, and they had to stay there all season sometimes in a hot stage and we always used 3m dual lock which is a sticky back plat hard plastic velcro it's not the hook and loop type but it's the one type that sticks to itself it's got little posts with little uh, mushroom shaped ends on it you put it together but the the uh, it has that 3m uh, 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 stickiness on the back of it that does not let go almost never. So once you stick something down, you may have trouble getting it off if you ever have to remove it, but it holds good. It uh, holds things uh, stiffly. In other words, it, once you lock it down, it will not move. It won't, you know, it's unlike the other type wool type Velcro where things can move around a little bit. Good, Bill. I once upon a time did a search on industrial Velcro and it came up some inch and a half. And I think they also have two inch Velcro uh, tape, essentially. It is sticky back. It has the hook side and the loop side. And I've had that roll for probably 10 years now. It works really well. So I would just do a search and make sure that you specify industrial Velcro rather than common household Velcro. Um, I still have things attached under desks 10 years later and it's doing fine. Good, Chris. Um. Alex, have you ever heard of VHB tape? I have not. So this is super interesting, and it's along the same lines, uh, uh, Bo. VHB stands for Very High Bond, <clears throat> and it is, it's double-sided tape, but it's double-sided tape on steroids. It sticks, like, ridiculously crazy. So, like, for example, this... They're showing here the, the example of putting together siding on a trailer with double-sided tape. And I will tell you uh, that Jack, our friend, uh, uh, security guard Jack, security guard, uh, when he was working on his trailer, he was using VHB. Now, he was backing it up with rivets because it just seemed like, like the prudent thing to do. But this VHB tape is amazing. And you can... You can you can build like like legitimate structures with double sided tape. Um, super expensive, not 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 cheap by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, very much worth looking into uh, as a way of fastening stuff together. Yeah, and the big thing that you have to decide really when you when you look at this is 
how long do you want that tape to stay and how how sticky do you want it to be when you pull it off? Uh, so what I mean by that is that there's two adhesives, of course, what's going on. So we have some Velcros that we get that once you put that Velcro on, it's never coming off. Like it's going to take the paint part of the metal, you know, like it's going to be there, you know, and but you can, the Velcro comes on and off easily. Um, there's other ones that we have that you can peel that that sticky part off. Um, obviously, it's not as robust um, and, and a lot of uses will go into it. And then the other side of that is that some of the Velcro, like what um, Courtney was talking about and some just thicker Velcro tends to just just hang on really, really effectively. Um, now that stick, you know, so basically what happens is, is that it's very hard to take it off. And so you have to make those decisions. Um, generally, the finer grained Velcro is going to come off and on to itself more effectively. When it's larger and um, and more sparse, it tends to be a lot rougher. Um, and it'll tend to want to hang on a lot harder. And then you just have to decide what kind of glue that's going. The best way to do this is to think about what you need and then to... Um, <laughs> buy a bunch of them <laughs> and test it. Fortunately, they're not very expensive in small quantities. And so um, typically what I've done in the past is bought uh, three or four uh, different styles of those um, and played with them a little bit to make a decision. But those are, that's what I'm measuring is how does the Velcro go on and off to itself and how does the sticky part stick or not stick to the, to the surface? Um, next question. Next question comes up from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. Can the panel recommend a USB headset mic combo with good mic audio quality? USB only, I guess, is the question here. So it's a USB mic with he you know headset uh, with good mic quality. Um, you know, I, there's not that many great ones. Um, most of the ones that you would get in this area are going to look like gamer headsets. You know, so they're going to be, bit, that, that's the most popular version of, I want a headset with a mic. And generally, the mics are somewhere between horrible and not super useful. <laughs> you know, like they're good for gamers, I guess. But obviously, gamers never listen to music because <laughs> the, the, the range of the mics on those gamer headsets is somewhere between like 800 and 2000. Like it's just like this tiny little sliver of the, of what, what you're willing to get that makes it very easy, I guess, to hear while you're playing and yelling at each other, but it's not a great experience. And so I haven't really found, I've definitely looked for this type of thing and haven't been super successful at finding that bill. I've had the same kind of problems. Most of those inexpensive ones have inexpensive mic elements and not the best preamplification and the rest of that in there. Um, one thing I would suggest is that it, there is, it is possible to adapt XLR or even the other common mic connectors, TA3, FTA4, FTA5, those are the, the tiny ones that have two, three, or four connections in there, and adapt them into a USB system that will get you far better microphones to use into your USB system, but it just requires more effort. Uh, but then you can go to some of the things like the Countrymen or the DPAs or things like that. If you're really looking for mic quality, no, none of the, the really super small diaphragm things, uh, even the best of them, and I, and I had a Countryman that I thought sounded really wonderful for years and did really well, but it's still not the same as a desk mic if you can keep up with the larger diaphragms. They're just, they just sound more natural over the course of time to my ear. Next question. Next question comes to us from Peter Moore in Auckland, New Zealand. The Neumann MT48 audio interface has been out for a little while now. Anyone on the panel or the community used one yet? And he's got a link there. Uh, what I will say is that Neumann is an amazing... Um, you know, they just make amazing mics. <laughs> you know, and so it's a great... It's a, it, you know, it looks like a really, really nice interface. Go ahead, Courtney. 
Yeah, I, I haven't used one yet. The Sennheiser, uh, made by, you know, Sennheiser owns Neumann's logo and uh, brand now. Uh, it looks interesting. It's got some uh, super low noise, two mic preamps and two instrument preamps and um, four outputs, uh, headphone outputs. So it's similar to something like... Uh, like the Roadcaster, and it has a USB-C output, you know, designed for <clears throat> interfacing with uh, workstations and so on. Uh, and it has I know, four headphone outputs, uh, so or at least two. Uh, so it's interesting. It's awfully expensive, though, eighteen hundred dollars and thirty. That's you're paying a lot for that logo on there, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the problem that I have is that um, uh, entry. You know, entry into this uh, process for me is, you know, really has to have uh, some kind of noise assist, noise assist or, or some kind of noise reduction. Just that's, that's just how I view it. I know that's not what everybody's using it for. Uh, and so maybe you use it for something else. But almost everybody that uses a small interface like this is sitting in a non-professional experience, non-professional location. And noise is this thing that they have to think about. Go ahead, Bill. Well, actually, I was trying to undo it. I Courtney made my point, and I was the one who messed up the question. Oh, got it. So, so the um, all I was going to say is that I, you know, I have a lot of respect for Neumann. We've used a lot of their mics. Um, at eighteen hundred dollars, I would rather have a mix pre ten. <laughs> you know, like that's the. I mean, like that's a lot more. That is a lot more mixer uh, than than the uh, than the Neumann, in my opinion. You're going to have state of the art preamps. Uh, you can have a noise assist option, and you've got some, you know, XLR in and out, uh, more XLR in and and some out. Uh, I think a mix pre ten would be better at the same price. Uh, next question. Samuel Nordvik in Norway comes up next, looking for a simple audio recording and editing tool for basic adjustments that can easily export segments, preferably with an integration to export files to a web server or podcasting service. He's trying to help a church, a church make their workflow more efficient. So one of the things that I, I don't have as much experience with, but it is something that I, I, that Jeff Cohen has been slowly, you know, feeding me information about is Reaper. And Reaper has a lot of automation tools that may be able to do exactly this. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. My go-to is Audacity. It's free. It's open source. It's cross-platform. It works on everything, Mac, PC, Linux. Uh, it's a good recorder. It has a lot of the tools uh, for visualizing audio. You can cut, uh, cut things up and export them in a variety of formats. It records in WAV format and its own. It has 32-bit float. Uh, it's pretty. It has a little bit of a steep learning curve, but it's not nearly as deep as Reaper is. Reaper is very deep, uh, and Reaper costs money too. Uh, there's, I think, a free download. But, uh, money, audacity, money audacity for is completely <laughs> free, and it's been available for more than a decade now. And it, we're, I put it on every every computer that I have, just so I have something to record and edit audio with. Yeah, um, I you know I think that. Um my, I think my tendency toward against free is mostly that I don't know how long they'll last, and I know the development cycle will be much slower. So, so, um, so I, you know, when you know, I, I don't know if Audacity is moving as fast as the other ones, um, but but I, I will, I would take a look um, at some of the automation within Reaper. Um, as far as uh, there's just a lot of automation tools uh, that are available that might be, uh, I would probably approach this with Logic myself. Um, I think Logic will let you export all those segments out on their own. Now, of course, Logic has a 
you know, it's 300 bucks. So you have to buy into it, but you can put it on all your computers, which I do. <laughs> so, so anyway, once you buy it once, um, I, I really, uh, so, so logic is probably how I would approach that. Um, you could also, but I, and I just don't know about, it's the automation part that I'm not certain about. I'm sh- I'm fairly certain that Fairlight within Resolve would export it. Um, you know, export the segments. Audacity probably would as well. I would use logic and Reaper has just tons of automation tools that, um, that you may want to take a look at because they may do all the things you want to do automatically. Um, next question. Paul Wallace comes up next from Austin, Texas. Arc the Mac iOS browser from the browser company is finally ditching its wait list. The browser helps users take notes, redesign web pages, organize tabs, but no AI yet. Comment. And he's got a link there to arc.net. Sure. <laughs> Sorry, like I'm not, I'm not, I'm not in the browser world. Like new browsers don't. I, I, I'm not looking for new browsers, so I don't know if anyone else here is looking for new browsers. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of past that. I, the problem is I got too many links and too many other things. I have Chrome and Safari. There's a couple of reasons I use those two, um, and that's all I know how to use anymore. As soon as I get onto a computer, I if it's a PC, I put Chrome on it. If it's a Mac, I put Chrome on it, and then I, I go between Safari and and uh, and Chrome. Uh, next question. Next one comes from Scott Wasserman in Detroit, Michigan. Frame.io users, I just discovered the pricing page shows much higher active storage. Two terabytes for Pro, three terabytes for Team for the same price as before. No more archival storage included and a lower user limit. It requires emailing support to update your account. I go, Bill. Yeah, so uh, I've noticed this in a look across services. I guess the big server farm people are must be now working on such economies of scale that I noticed that my iCloud account has also been increasing its capacity without me spending any more than I did before. So I think this is an across the industry 10, a trend. I hope it continues. It's always great having more storage as your files get bigger and bigger and you need more. But I, I'm hoping this continues to be a trend that they just keep you know, upgrading capacity in the back end of these things without us having to pay any more for them. That'd be great. I better read my emails from, I keep on getting these emails from my account rep at Frame.io going, hey, we need to talk. It's probably because they changed those rules. <laughs> so they're trying yeah, to talk to me about them. I've been, I, you know, I just kind of like, I, I've been using Frame now for uh, four or five years. And, you know, it is my primary way of moving files around. Um, you know, and so, uh, you know, I just, it's a little bit more expensive. I have a lot of stuff that goes into archive. Um, I have a lot of stuff. And I got to tell you, there's nothing better than a client asking for something that that we worked on two years ago. <laughs> I just go up to the cloud and send them a link. Um, it, it works. It's super nice um, to be able to do that. Chris has his own. He's built his own. He can do the same thing. But for those I of us who can't going build back their own. to 2007, Alex, and it's all online. I can instantly accessible. <laughs> uh, next question. John Preto, Las Vegas, Nevada, here on the panel. The congressional hearing on UAP is happening as we speak. Will the witnesses testify that our government has recovered alien ships? Will we see new technology come from it? Go ahead, Courtney. I think not. <laughs> That's my opinion, and I'm sticking by it. Uh, you know, if, if they had uh, given us some... Uh, Great technology. We'd have already exploited it by now. And, uh, you know, uh, Apple would have already deprecated. Transistors. That's all I'm saying. Transistors. You know. <laughs> so go ahead, Bill. Yeah, I think here's the thing. If something had landed that had a technology that was truly going to revolutionize some part of our world, there's no way you can keep that secret. I mean, I'm sorry. I don't care how much you lock it down. If it's truly going to be planetary changing, it will get out because people just want to be. 
we're going to whisper to you about this thing we found out in the lab. It's amazing. And, you know, just people are human nature. Well, you can lock down some things in some categories, but not the truly this is going to change everything. There's too much, I think, pressure on being the person to break the news. Go ahead, Chris. Alex is crawling out of his skin because he wants to lock this question and he wants to move on. But I will say that anytime somebody uses, there's just a couple of arguments here. Anytime somebody uses the argument, Bill, well, if there was something, you know, it would have gotten out. It's gotten out. People have been talking about Roswell since Roswell, okay? <laughs> and I'm not saying that there's little green men and little spaceships, but anybody says, oh, well, that, you know, we would have that technology. What do you think this is? This thing is such a quantum leap ahead of the technology that we went to, you know, the moon with. It's not even funny. So... It, I'm, I'm going to tell you, I'm a firm believer. Absolutely, we've been visited. And absolutely, we are living under the shadow of technology that has been shared with us, in my belief, from millennia ago. I mean, there's even, there's even whole companies, Alienware. I mean, you know, like, I mean, they're, 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 you know what I mean? They, 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 they don't even hide the fact that they make it. it. They just are like alien. They, they just say, <laughs> we're making this with alien technology, <laughs> Alienware. And, and they and just, I will tell you, right it's under easier our noses. to make a joke about it than it is to talk about it seriously <laughs> because it can, it's, it's a disturbing thought <laughs> if you, if you want to really delve into it. It is a disturbing thought. But I'm going to tell you that in my lifetime, I'm born in 1962, in my lifetime, there will be irrefutable evidence that this civilization has been affected by other civilizations. I think we're, we're all from Mars. I think we jumped off because Mars was going bad. Again, humor no, no, is like, easier I think, than I think dealing with it. I, I think we all started in Mars, and then I think I think and then we came here because we ruined the the, the environment. And of Elon Mars. is just trying to be. And now we're here trying to go back, and I think that would be the funniest thing if we figured out that we're going back to the planet that we left in the first place. All right, next question. Didn't shave this morning. Let's, I should oh, have used Occam's razor. We can talk about this way longer. Let's go to the next question. Haken Force of Stockholm, Sweden says, any suggestions how to track pan and tilt of a tripod head outdoors to feed into Unreal? Looking at adding on-field graphics in sports. Oh, this would be a good one. I mean, you know, the so the, 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 the question is, is whether you're trying to have encoders on the thing, so you're actually following that, or whether you're trying to do a, a control, um, a PTZ head. So most of the things that you've seen, my understanding is most of the things that you've seen, we've got some people in our group that, um, uh, that have, that have think about this a lot. Yeah, uh, you want to look at like the the Panasonic 150s have t um, telemetry, so they'll pass telemetry back, so they'll tell you exactly what they're doing while they're doing it, and that's what you really need is you need something that's going to pass that telemetry back. And the only uh, PTZ head that I know of that will do that is the Panasonic. Um, now you can get um, something more complex when you go outside. It gets a little harder because a lot of the mat, the, the a lot of the tracking systems we use. Um, have to do with having sensors or um, visual sensors or or other kinds of sensors that are around the camera that that are measuring that. There are some that will manage that um, that encoder. Uh, Mickey suggests looking at NCAM, so that's another one to look at. But I, I would say that 
uh, if I was trying to do the graphics, what I would do is I'd use a Panasonic 150 and I would use establishing shots exactly the way that the NFL does, <laughs> which is, you know, and so you're not trying to like follow the action, but you want a wide shot of the field. You're going to roll down and have the graphics flow in. Um, I would do that. And again, you could do a lot of the quote unquote AR stuff without that tracking by simply just doing... Um, uh, you know, still shots to start with to have those fly over and feel like they're into it. So I, the first thing I would do is just have shadows, lighting that looks realistic, so on and so forth. But I would probably then move to um, a pan tilt zoom head like the 150. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. If you're serious about this, the, um, <clears throat> there's a company called Mosis uh, that makes uh, head tracking kits that you can put on Sackler or other popular uh, pan tilt heads that are uh, data encoders that track the pan tilt and then you have a separate encoder for the zoom and focus because um, you have to track all those things because they make a difference in how the image looks and they have a pretty high degree of uh, resolution on them uh, so you can look there Cal you you know, yeah and, and the hard part there is that when you start getting into the you're right the Moses is great I've mostly seen Moses used internal in inside they, they show a picture of it being used outside um, I have a feeling that the calibration process of, of, of any given camera or lens into the Moses system will not be trivial, especially if you're doing it outside in the, at the same level of being able to just, um, you'll probably spend the same amount of money and time or much less time and, and maybe about the same amount of money on the Panasonic. So I really think hard about using a PTZ over, I mean, and again, we've used Moses systems in, internally in, in studios and they work great. Uh, I don't, I'm a little... I don't know how that would work very well outside. The problem, here's the problem with, with measuring the encoding of, um, the problem is you need to know exactly where the camera is. And the problem with measuring the encoding from a tripod head is that the level of accuracy that tripod head has to have to be at a millimeter of accuracy in the far end is really tough. Uh, we, had, we tried to do this 25 years ago <laughs> and we've been fiddling with this for a long time. And so if it moves just a little, if it's just, just I mean, minuscules of a degree off it's going to look like it's it's coming off of the off of the field and so that's really the the real challenge there uh, next question next one comes from andre dole in berlin any comments on the magewell aio as mainstreaming and recording device and he's got a link to it there and um this is a let's see so it's multi-input video processing signal so it it is um it just it's an encoder that can take kind of anything and turn it into uh this is you know basically what you you, you have you know hdmi and and uh, as well as um STI, I believe, and then it'll do 4K 30 out to a great number of things. It also has a recorder built into it. I mean, you know, Magewell builds great boxes and, you know, this is a, um, you know, this looks like another <laughs> great box. Um, the, uh, I, I, I don't know what the, does anyone know what the price point is on this guy? Um, it, it does look like it will tie back into, you should have HDMI or SDI, um, it looks like you can take both of them in. So this is another one of those things where you could use it as a presentation tool. Um, so I guess this would, the, the thing that would be the most similar to this, what we're really comparing this to is the Blackmagic. Um, uh, this is the, uh, I don't think that's the one, yeah. Uh, 
this is the what Chris is showing here, um, but I think this is most similar to the Blackmagic web presenter. I think that one of the advantages of this one is that it it takes in a lot of other um, formats, um, so and protocols or 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 supports more protocols than than Blackmagic does. Um, I don't, I, I I didn't see a price go by, um, so I I don't know exactly what the eight eight hundred retail, eight hundred retail, yeah. So. Um, you know, if it does something different than what the web presenter does, I think it's probably a great value because, I mean, Major Well Banks generally doesn't make things that are overpriced. I mean, they're they're usually pretty, uh, and it looks, you know, 4K30 is a is a great uh, format there. So, so yeah, it looks it looks pretty good. Um, we'll have to take a look at it a little bit deeper. Maybe we'll get get them to send us one to test against the web presenter. But that's the it's it's a web presenter. It's a little bit more with a little bit more versatility. Um, next question. Next question comes from Bo Cordell in Stockholm, Sweden. Do you know of any solution to sync multiple PTZ cameras to a single point of interest from multi-direction with only one pan-tilt-zoom operator? Yes. Um, this is done by Mark, uh, Mark Roberts. Um, it, they have a follow camera function. Now, I don't know if the first camera is a... It's not usually a PTZ. It's usually a person following it. And I don't know what the name of the uh, the name of the system is, but basically, and I think it was connected to Nikon, if if I remember correctly, because I think they bought Mark Roberts. Um, uh, but but it's it's a um, it's like a follow camera, and it, what it's designed for is specifically sports that you can follow someone running down the field, um, and uh, the poly motion, I think, is might might be what it what it is here. Um, and so basically you can have one camera operator following the, the action that's going on. And then you have, uh, um, all the other cameras, basically they're mapped onto that field. So it's, it's harder when you start going anywhere, but if you're on a flat plane, like a field, you can have one person following that camera camera and all the other ones will follow the same position on the field, um, and make it and, uh, and have it tied that way. Next question. By the way, I mistake that. That wasn't Bo's question. That was Hoken Force's question uh, from Norway. So thank you for that. Bo Coral's question is next. And that's uh, when you're rebuilding a machine from scratch, do you prefer ISOs or images? And what are the pros and cons of each? Uh, go ahead, Bill. I don't use uh, ISOs. I do use disk images, and I try to keep them on an NVMe drive like this. These are pretty inexpensive now. They're incredibly fast, and it's easy. Uh, this has a USB connection on it. This is one of the OWCs. There are other manufacturers. But you just want something that's really fast, and you want to build a disk image that has not only the OS restore, but if there's any things you kind of specify, I make a disk image after I've made some modifications to it. So it's just easy to kind of come in with everything pre-installed. That's my solution. Others may find a different path. Go ahead, Courtney. In the Windows world, when I rebuild a system, I start over again with uh, the latest uh, ISO of Windows installed, downloaded from Microsoft. Uh, and, then if and then still, you're going to have to do about a day's worth of updates to it after you get it installed. And then I just have a folder on a, on a uh, NVMe drive that has all the programs that I normally use, and I just call it new computer setup. And so I, I reinstall every single program uh, into that new installation. Because if you make an image, an existing image or a copy of an image off to a hard drive and ISO, and then just restore that image, you also restore all the problems that that image has built up over the years. So there's a lot of cruft that accumulates on most operating systems as you go along. 
um, and install and uninstall stuff. It leaves behind little trails of stuff. that, And that's the stuff you want to get rid of when you want to rebuild your system. So I always believe it's best to start from scratch, start with a blank hard drive, install the operating system from its current version, downloadable from the manufacturer, and then install all your applications. I know it takes a long time, but your machine will run a lot faster because they won't have all that cruft left over from all those programs that you installed over the years and then uninstalled and they didn't completely uninstall. Yeah, I I don't I can't think of any time in the last 20 years that I've used an image. Like I I I I um I always put everything back on one at a time. Uh, Mac or PC, doesn't matter. Um, the Mac makes it easier because all my little apps are all stuff I bought through the App Store and I just hit go and it just goes and just installs the latest versions of everything. Um, and then I just put the, I usually only put the stuff on that I'm using. This goes on my iOS devices as well as my computer. I put things on interactively because I, I don't just automatically go, oh, I'm going to put that that on because I don't know if I'm going to use it again. And so I, I put things on as I need. There's a couple core apps that I know I'm going to need. But then after that, I kind of put them on as needed. As a, and that way, the computer stays a little cleaner. Go ahead, Bill. I should have specified, I don't make images of computers that have been running for a long time. I make images of the computer when I first get it, and it has just the stock operating system and the rest of that stuff. So hopefully it is the current state of the machine when it was starting, and I don't image after I've done a tremendous amount of work in the computer after that because of the exact problem that Courtney noted. And David Brady points out, if you're building a fleet of computers in short order, build one, image that, and then uh, then, then um, uh, lay them down. And that makes a lot of sense. If you're doing it all at the same time, you know, that's, yeah. that's important. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, but if you do that uh, one image, you have to have a, you know, uh, enterprise licensing for all of the software that you put on there because you may run into problems. Uh, then when you try and activate those licenses on all those computers with that have the same license, if they're tied to an individual computer so beware of that. And uh, I was going to point out that most computers these days come uh, from the manufacturer with a uh, restore partition, hidden partition automatically on the hard drive that lets you restore it to the factory original uh, state uh, by running a, a you know uh, some routine either on Mac or, or PC that lets you restore it to its original state. It wipes off, wipes out everything on the drive and restores from that original restore partition to the state that it was in when you bought it. A quick reminder that you can ask questions throughout the hour. So um, if you've got questions for the second hour uh, for Rob Bridget, or uh, if you have questions for the first hour, just general questions. It can be audio questions. It can be general questions. Um, this is our audio day. Um, go ahead and throw those into Makana and make sure to vote on those questions so we know what order you'd like us to ask them in. Uh, let's go ahead to the next question. Douglas Carmichael's up next, and he notes a British company has created a rechargeable amplifier that can be charged from solar panels or a wind turbine. The company claims it can make events sustainable. Do you think it will make a real impact? Maybe. <laughs> like it, you know, I think that, uh, you know, buying something that's a tricky, you know, that I, I just need it to be a good amplifier and then I can figure out more sustainable ways of powering it. I don't think I'd want the amplifier itself to build that into it. It's just, it, I don't, then I'm now stuck with something that's kind of probably not the same quality as what I'm using otherwise. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, semiconductor stuff has gotten so much more efficient that normal um, small current draw 
things would probably work great for this kind of a solution. Amplification is a little different in that it tends to suck up power. If you have 500 watt amplifier there, that's going to be burning through a lot of juice over the course of the time it's in operation. And I'm not sure that either a solar or a wind thing would keep up with that. Maybe if you charged it for a day or two and then were able to draw on it over the course of you know, a concert, but I would always want some sort of generator backup because uh, I wouldn't trust that it would keep going on a big amplifier. Courtney? Yes, this takes me back to the original portable amplifier, the Pig Nose, invented by Richard Edlund of uh, sci-fi fame, who was uh, known by, you know, working on 2001, doing the visual effects and so on. Uh, so he invented the pig nose because he wanted to play his guitar at the beach. It's battery powered. It's been around. We can still buy him today for $123. The Robert Eglund, who is Freddy Krueger? No. no. Richard Edlund. Richard, Richard Edlund. Oh, okay. Why do I heard that word? I thought, yeah, yeah, there's yeah. a career. <laughs> there you okay. go. Uh, next question. Next question from Bo Cordell and Charleston again. The Ventoy bootable USB disk utility was recommended on the show a while back, and it has already proven incredibly useful. What other hidden gems does the group have to offer? It's hard. The one that I'm playing with right now um, that I haven't got quite working, but I think it's going to be a gem. So this is a future gem. It's a little keyboard. It's the smallest keyboard ever. See the, the, see this little guy here. So this is a, a tiny little keyboard. Now you probably under, understand why would you need a keyboard with three uh, buttons. But what I need a keyboard for three buttons is frame forward, frame back on my PowerPoint slides. <laughs> so I just, you know, and even even this was more than I needed. Like I, I have it, um, you know, I've been using this, uh, um, but the Stream Deck, but I was like, I have other things to do with six keys is three keys more than I need. Um, and so so this uh, is um, my uh, my little thing that I've been playing with. And, and anyway, so I, I, I think that that's going to be something that I... Um, what do you do with the third key, Alex? I don't even need that. I could have a two key one, but I haven't figured out what to do with the third one. So, but it, but it's in a row and I, you, you always need, you know, it's a little extra capacity there. So, you know, I got a little headroom. If I need one more key, I can have it. And, and so, uh, so anyway, but the forward and back is the, is the, uh, is all I'm using on this guy. And it is, um, I'm going to be using it actually later today. Um, and so anyway, it's, it's a cool little, um, keyboard. It's like 10 bucks or something like that. I don't know. It's not, it's not particularly expensive. I'll put a link so in. Here's That's the cool. question. Here's the question, Alex. Yeah. Did you use key one and three to go forward and back? Of and course. In the middle? Okay. No, no, no. It's want, JKL see, or it's small. I can space them. I can space them out. So I can, there's no, uh, yeah, you could do JKL. Look, you can get a little JKL keyboard. <laughs> a little TV oh, just there's that one on the corner. You know, I probably, mm, I got to think about that. And is it wireless? Sounds what? really good. It's not wireless. It's wired. Oh, so yeah. I don't even care. I might have to leave. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next question. Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida is up next. I have an old Windows 10 desktop that was damaged in moving. I'd like to get that data off the intact drive. Any recommendations for bare drive adapters that I may connect to an M2 MacBook? Thanks. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Well, I have a bunch of these. Um, uh, it depends on the type of drives that are in that old. Uh, if they're SATA drives, you can get uh, one of these uh, SATA USB 3 adapters for two and a half inch hard drives. And you can also get them for three and a half inch hard drives uh, that just go to USB. And they're cheap. They're usually about under 10 bucks. And you just plug them into any USB 3 uh, port on any PC or Mac. And you should be able to read the uh, data off of it. On a MacBook, it 
it depends on how the drive was formatted, as long as it wasn't bitlockered or in, encrypted. If it's not encrypted, you should be able to just take the drive out. If it's a spinning drive, connect it to a SATA or um, a SATA to USB adapter, which you can find on Amazon, and then be able to read those, find those files and read them on your MacBook and transfer them if it's, as long as it's in TFS or FAT32 or EXFAT. Next question. Next one comes to us from Tommy Schantz in St. Paul, Minnesota. Does Dante work with AES-67? Uh, you can't work with it directly, um, to my knowledge. Um, so so you, need, you would need to have something that's going to convert from one to the other. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael says, on the Magewell Ultra Encode AIO, uh, can it be used to convert HDMI or SDI to USB like the Blackmagic Design Web Presenter? While I haven't used it, I did look at the page, and it does look like it will do that conversion. So it will tra- turn it into a webcam as well as the many other things that it that it produces, or that's what it looks like from the web page, but we haven't gotten to test it yet. Uh, next question. Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana says, what are the possible gotchas of using a large diaphragm condenser mic outdoors in a humid environment? I don't think that the humidity is as big of a deal as the large diaphragm. <laughs> like it's outside, it picks up a lot of things. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, typically we have problems with these small diaphragm condenser microphones used outdoors. The Chef's microphones are notorious for that because they have a very uh, narrow gap between the uh, diaphragm and the back plane. And uh, moisture can gather in there and it can short out because there's a high voltage that goes between the two. For, to vary the capacitance and it changes uh, condensation on the uh, diaphragm changes the capacitance of the microphone. The larger diaphragm microphones have less of a problem because they have more of a gap with the larger diaphragm. So less to worry about there. Uh, any microphone in a moisture situation other than the uh, Sennheiser MKH 4 series or 8 series uh, or the RF series, RF condenser microphones, could generate problems in a heavy humidity. You know, if you're in the, you know, in the steamy jungle somewhere and it's 100% humidity, then you might have a problem of crackling noises. Good, Bill. Not not humidity. I mean, it's wind. LDC large diaphragm condensers are are so sensitive that you put them in a windy situation. They're horrible. As a matter of fact, I've been testing. I, I have an audio book that came up, and I decided to use my Neumann, and I brought it into the studio here, and I replaced this microphone with it, and was recording the first couple of chapters of the audio book with it, and I had all sorts of issues just because it was so sensitive that even with the noise reduction that Cedar is providing me, I found myself every time something changed in the environment, like. Um, something two rooms away turned on or the air condition, the Lord forbid, uh, started, I, the noise reduction would eventually do it, but it was just so sensitive that it would turn out to be a, a, a struggle. So I'm going to take it back in the voice booth to eliminate those problems. Large diaphragm condensers are wonderful mics, but they do not solve all problems. And sensitivity is one of the problems they bring to a situation like that. Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Anthropic, Google, Microsoft, and OpenAI launched the Frontier Model Forum. So just what is a Frontier AI model? And he's got a link there to OpenAI's site. Go ahead, John. All of the CEOs of these companies met with the Biden administration last week. And this is the this is the conclusion of, of what they came together with, with the 
with the government. So we'll see what happens. I don't see Russia or China joining any sort of coalition like this in the future. So we'll see. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like this is the tragedy, what they call the tragedy of the commons, which is that, and, and I think this was done on purpose, <laughs> which is by making a lot of this stuff open source and having everybody have a lot of the technology, it makes it almost impossible to put the genie back in the bottle. Like it's just, it is a, it, it's a really complicated uh, problem because you really can't stop it um, at this point. And so, um, again, we can decide that we're not going to do it. And then that, all that means is that some other country will get ahead of us. And Japan has already been saying that they're really going to leave it wide open. They want to use this as innovation. I don't think we can, as, as John said, I don't think we can expect China or Russia to follow anything that we ask them to do in this area. They want to be competitive. So it really makes it almost impossible for us to um, try to slow this down. You know, and I think that that's a mistake. You know, I think that all you do is you fall behind somebody else that's moving very quickly. And I don't think there's any way to avoid that. I think we have to figure out how we work with it, but not how do we slow it down because slowing down just means we're behind. Um, next question. Tlaloc Lopez Waterman in Brevard, North Carolina says, has anyone on the panel had a chance to watch the documentary 32 Sounds by Sam Green? Run, don't walk to the theater, in my opinion, he says. Oh, I think that this is coming. Um, I think this is coming to San Rafael. Um, in fact, I'm really glad that, that he brought this up because it's this Friday. <laughs> so, so anyway, um, I am now, uh, my, my schedule has been changed. I'm going to try to get there. We, we should do, see if we can do a get together. Maybe we'll get, uh, 32 sounds is, um, uh, it sounds, it sounds, sounds like a great documentary. Um, and I've been wanting to see it and I'm, and I, I have to admit, I think I even put it now, if I look back, um, I think I even have it in my calendar. So I just haven't looked that far out yet that I was going. I think I, yeah, talking to, yeah, it's in my calendar. <laughs> so anyway, um, uh, so yeah, I, I think I put it in there like, I am going to go see this. So, so we'll see. Um, I'm going to try to see it this weekend. Uh, it's touring. So you have to kind of keep track of where, what city it's in. I don't think it's available online yet. So it's still going from theater to theater. So, so let's uh, see if we can, uh, some of us will go to it. Maybe um, if you're interested in going to that uh, with me on Friday, uh, go ahead and uh, send, send me a Discord and we'll, we'll figure it out. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael's up next. Has anyone worked with Vocaline? It looks very useful for mixing or remixing pop dance tracks and making vocals fit a new rhythm track. But it is mostly, is it mostly a post-centric tool? I think it is mostly a post-centric tool. Um, I don't think that this would process in real time yet. Um, so I, I don't think that that's the case. Um, but yeah, it looks like a pretty cool, I mean, we, it's the kind of thing that we might want to try to bring in for a second hour and take a closer look at. Um, but it looks like a pretty, pretty great piece of software. Let's go ahead and do the next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas. Flipper Zero now has an app store. Talk about the significance and usefulness of Flipper Zero. And there is an article from The, Lur uh, the Verge that is referenced there, you can see. I'm trying to, I'm trying to, uh, <laughs> Sorry, this, it's hard when we get kind of obscure um, links uh, in the middle of the show because we don't get a chance to take a look at them there. Um, so this is a marketplace that makes it easier to install. I, I, it is a it's a dolphin th themed digital multi tool. I don't 
I don't, <laughs> they go, I don't understand. Are they trying to displace the potatoes and, and radishes? <laughs> exactly. We're now into dolphins. What happens, what happens if you feed, feed the, 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 the potato the, the, the potato to the dolphin? I mean, that's the thing that you have to be, you have, you have to be very concerned about here. Um, the, uh, I, um, I, I'm so confused. Uh, this looks like a little bit of a... Um, a hacker tool where you can, it, it, I, I'm looking at pictures where it's actually, uh, it, it looks like some kind of basic automation tool that also will um, connect out to, um, uh, connect out to a breadboard. Well, I'm seeing a breadboard here. So I'm, I'm, I'm yeah, I'm not entirely certain. Uh, I don't know really what I'm looking at here. Um, so it's, uh, it, it looks a little Arduino-ish. Um, that it, but it's like in a box, and so it's got like a little automation tool. I, I'd have to, we'd have to do some more research on it. It's really, it's a Swiss. It, they call it the Swiss. Is the Swiss Army knife of antennas. Um, so it, I just, it's a sub. Let's see, it's an RFID NFC, a sub sub G wireless RFID NFC and Bluetooth radio. So it has all of those radios built into it, and it can receive and transmit infrared signals. Um, it has a USB-C port and a row of GPIO ports on the top that let the interface go to other hardware. Okay, it's kind of... Um, uh, it, it, so basically what it looks like is you can, you can pair it and then send it uh, commands and it can take that, those commands out and, and um, uh, turn them into either RFI, you know, it, it can turn them into a variety of different signals there. So interesting interesting approach it sounds a little bit like a remote control hub is that its function to take signals from those various things well, and turn them into it, commands yeah you can send it out with electrical commands or 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 you could again connect there actually might be some use for for, for me now that i made fun of it at the beginning cuz i didn't know what it was but now i'm kind of like well maybe i'll buy one um, i don't know what what they're i don't know how to oh they're 15 dollars i think or it looks like it's 15 dollars so it's not not a particularly uh, big um, commitment. So we'll take a look at it a little closer. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael, next. And he says, in a uh, behind-the-scenes article from Oppenheimer, it shows a camera operator with the IMAX camera on his shoulder. Considering the bulk and or weight of the camera, wouldn't there be a risk of shoulder injury when shooting for long periods? Go ahead, Courtney. Uh, yes, well, you can't shoot for long periods because the handheld version of this only holds uh, two minutes of film, and then you have to take it apart, reload it, which is a, takes about 10 or 15 minutes to re 10 minutes or so to reload. So, and that's the DP with it on his shoulder there, and I'm sure he's about three inches shorter now. <laughs> yeah, it's a, uh, um, it, it is, uh, IMAX is a commitment. I mean, it's definitely, it's such a heavy, um, heavy piece of machinery. Um, to, to make that work. So it's, it's an interesting, uh, uh, interesting puzzle there. Go ahead, Bill. I was going to say, all camera operators who work with large cameras, they are athletes in their own way. They have to really work out to be able to achieve smooth shots. You know, the people even who use the assisted things like Steadicams and stuff like that, I've watched uh, the good ones at NAB and things like that, and they're all built a kind of a particular way. With You can see that they've really taken care of themselves physically. They work out. Their shoulder and arm muscles are well-defined, and typically they, have, they just have a stability about them when they're using those that is remarkable. I've tried when I've thrown a steady camera gun to come anywhere close to that and just realize that I'm not uh, built nor conditioned to be able to do that kind of work. It's a specialist job. You're good, Courtney. Yeah, a bigger problem, Douglas, uh, is for the boom operator. Uh, when digital cameras came about, 
where you didn't have mag changes and film cameras, you know, you always had to stop. Uh, you couldn't continue on a, a take longer than about, you know, uh, 11 minutes because that was a typical uh, mag uh, length on a, on a regular 35 millimeter camera. And on some handheld cameras, only four minutes. So, and on the IMAX, only about a, you know, two minutes, a minute, you know, three minutes. So uh, when they went to digital cameras, the digital version of the IMAX camera would be a big problem because not necessarily for the cameraman, because the cameraman gets used to it. He can get used to holding it on his shoulder. But even if it's on a tripod, the poor boom operator that's holding that boom out over their head with a pound and a half microphone on it, and the director goes, that was a great three-minute take. Let's go again and action. And the camera doesn't have to cut because it's got a hard drive on it that can store, you know, four hours worth of footage or, or at least an hour's worth of footage. So you don't get a break to relax. And that's the real problem. That can cause serious health injuries. And the unions were involved in, uh, man, in mandating uh, physical breaks between uh, takes so that the boom operator can relax uh, and, or switch out a boom operator. Uh, and other people that have to handhold stuff during the take because when the takes turn into 30-minute long pieces, uh, it's intolerable. Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas is back with this one. The European Union enacts the 43 billion euro chips act part of an ambitious plan to produce 20 percent of the world's chips by 2030 after a final approval from ministers please comment sure go ahead courtney well you know we had that here we had the chips act here and uh tsmc decided they were going to build a big plant in Arizona or Arizona, yeah, not Arizona, and Arizona. they announced just recently that they cannot find enough uh, workers or tech, you know, technically able uh, people to build that plant right now. So they're putting off, they're delaying the construction of it because they just can't find enough workers to do it uh, that are, are skilled enough in building. Those are very high tech plants that take uh, you know a lot of care. They have to be you know designed and built under you know, dust-free conditions and so on. So uh, it takes a great deal of expertise to build those chip plants. And that's why they take three or four years to build. And right now there's a, a shortage of workers to do that worldwide. And I would think the EU is going to run into that same problem. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, very much so. I've, I've been paying attention to that because some of the feeds from where I used to live back in Scottsdale have been talking about the TSMC plant. It's had exactly, as Courtney says, a, a, a kind of a labor issue. Uh, particularly these things now, you know, we're down to three nanometer chips. That's an un, unfathomably small working environment. So um, I don't completely understand the process of making those. I know it has to do with photolithography and things like that, but it's, it's extraordinarily high precision work. And the, um, the, the technicians, there just aren't a lot of them in the world. And, you know, we keep going faster and faster. I remember when six nanometers was like, wow. And that seemed to be a year ago. And now they're down to three nanometers. And you just wonder how, how small they can get these things. And it's going to require retraining, I think, a lot of global technicians. So if you have a real interest in that, boy, that sounds like it would be an ongoing career that would have pay a lot of dividends. But yeah, they were, they were talking specifically about about having to to bring lots of engineers from the TSMC plants in the Pacific Rim here to Arizona, to over there to Arizona to get this thing 
built and in place and working. And, and the problem is it doesn't pay a lot of dividends to the folks that live over <laughs> to where it's getting built. So the, the salaries in the, you know, that are um, in those countries are not the same as the salaries in Europe and the United States. So it's not only just finding people, but it's finding people that, that you can keep um, at those salaries. And so it, it doesn't make any sense. Like, the, like I, I know that people think that, that they want to and Sure, there's now $43 billion that someone's going to spend and as they figure out that they can't get it done. Um, next question. Hakan Force in uh, Stockholm, Sweden again. A suggestion for how to pull a region of interest from a 4K NDI feed. I would think that it's going to be um, something like Memo Live or OBS or vMix. All of those things uh, should be able to uh, bring those feeds in. Go ahead, Bill. Well, I was going to say, um, screencasts and some of those things will do it in post, but if uh, you didn't specify live, but I'm going to kind of assume that you're talking about doing it live. And so I would think that some of the tools like Alex suggested do it. If you need to do it in post, there are quite a few things down to the level of screencast or even QuickTime Pro that will allow you to define a region of interest and capture that from an existing file into another file. That's pretty trivial. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. You might check with uh, AJA because they make a, a bunch of region of interest scan converters. They're mostly SDI or HDMI, and I don't know if they handle 4K. So you'd have to convert it from NDI to uh, SDI or HDMI, run it through a region of interest uh, uh, generator or converter, and then output it uh, in whatever format you need. But check with AJA because they make a number of them that are scan converters, that are scalers, that do that kind of stuff. Also, Geffen makes some too, I believe, so check them out. Also, before we, we go to the next question, I figured we have some time. It's, it's the audio day, uh, and I thought I would give a little bit of a tour. I, I had torn something apart, and I thought it'd be fun to show everybody. Um, this is... Uh, this is what I've been playing with uh, for for our next uh, vision. So what this is here is this is a, obviously a blimp. Um, and in here, let's see if you can see it. There in there, hidden in there is an Ambio, uh, an Ambio mic. Um, so that's the Sennheiser Ambio mic that's, that's in there. It usually has a cap on it, but I was showing somebody else. So it's four little mics, but the problem we had, of course, was wind uh, that was that was kind of be, becoming problematic there. So we put it inside of this blimp. Now this blimp... Um, closes up so you can see this little guy here um let's see if i can get this all to work without it spinning around so this will snap in it's actually a pretty well made blimp um that that you can do it these little um these are all magnets by the way they just snap on and you can kind of snap this in and then you turn these little guys and they will they will lock it into place so it doesn't go anywhere um so that's that's the blimp and that's the first step of making this not make a lot of noise and then, um, and then we add, I'll, I'll, I'm not going to try to pull this on, on on air, but this is the, I don't know, we tend to refer to this as a dead cat, but this is, um, so what, you, it's not, there was no cat involved um, with it, but you pull this over top and I'll show you what it looks like when it's in action. So we're, we're using this for ambisonic um, and uh, the ambisonic uh, correction. So here is what it looks like when we're in action here. So this is testing it at the moment. Um, and we, we're still working on a couple of the pipeline issues here, but this is that the mic that I just showed you here. And then it's got four outputs that are going into the Scorpio. And then the Scorpio is knocking those out as AES into this embedder. This is a Blackmagic embedder. So we have the signal that goes out here. It's a 4K, 4K signal. Um, and then it is going through this embed and then it goes into this live view and then 
goes to San Rafael. <laughs> you know, and so um, the interesting thing here is also we have two mics. And so those two handheld mics, the cool thing about those is those are going into channels one and two. And then the, then we're sending these other channels separately as Ambisonic and four other channels. And, you know, the, the advantage of that is that uh, we are, um, by, by doing that, we can send back that ambisonic information, but two microphones um, individually. And we've talked a little bit about this in the past, but this is, I realized I hadn't probably, probably shown you the kit before, or that's kind of the open. We're just testing a new pipeline for it. And um, anyway, so we, uh, um, we have that kit um, put together and we're you know kind of pushing that out. Now, once it gets back, we convert the ambisonic to 5.1. But what's cool is now we can attenuate the 5.1 because the mics that we're talking into are two cent. We're going to drive those down the center, and the ambisonic provides the atmosphere, so we have control over that. Um, and so, um, so we're pretty excited about using that in um, uh, at Seagraph. And so we're just. Uh, but I thought I'd give you. I'll probably give you some updates as we get a little closer. Go ahead, Courtney. Uh, yeah. Uh, on that setup, have you ever found a four-channel wireless transmitter that keeps the phase correct for transmitting ambisonic, or does it always have to be? hardwired with the same length of uh, XLR cables to your mixer yeah. kind, of, kind of encumbers you so you couldn't send it out, you know, to a, uh, a remote I, location to gather episodic. From so we're going to test it. Um, so I, I, I think that one of the things that we're looking at is, um, you know, I was talking to Mickey about this, is that we're using wired right now so I can just get the pipeline working. Um, and then we do have the electrosonic mics um, that we're going to use. And so we're going to try to connect it with electrosonic and just see what happens. Um, see if we can tune those. Um, we think that there may be a way for us to tune those microphones um, to the, um, you know, to be able to get them in, into phase. So we're, we're taking, we're going to take a look at that. That would obviously revolutionize the process <laughs> to, to, to do that. Um, we're also looking at potentially, you know, do we have more control if we go to, for instance, uh, the sound, um, sound devices A20s, they have a lot of control of how we can talk to those and we might be able to find a way to, to get them to, to sync up. So, so we're, um, we're looking at a couple different wireless options. We definitely want to move to wireless. I think that it would revolutionize what we're doing. Yeah. Um, go ahead and they and just, uh, they just announced the new sound devices, uh, Transmitter yesterday, I think. Uh, so take a look at it. It's two thousand three hundred dollars for the single transmitter that goes to that A twenty receiver and the four channel receiver. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, and each it, transmitter is about you know two thousand three hundred dollars. Which is, uh, I guess, in my world, that's about what we pay for transmitters. <laughs> so, 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 so like that's a that's a pretty that's a you know those are um, you know we we usually pay about that that much um, for for what we do. So um, that's not that big of a stretch for for um, from my perspective. But uh, anyway, but the um, I think that we're going to keep on playing with you know testing this and seeing how far we can push it. We'll keep on sending some updates as we build this kit. But over the next two weeks, um, you know, we're we're continuing to improve the um, the kit. Again, the the goal here is to use Ambisonic as a way to um, the Ambisonic source and then converting it back to surround as a way to create atmosphere. So even though it sounds crazy to be doing this at a convention and doing interviews and everything else with 5.1, we feel like it's going to make it more immersive for those people that can hear it. Um, it's going to be a more immersive experience. And because we're using two high, you know, two mics with, you know, a lot of off-axis rejection, you know, we can send them down the center and then have the other ones um, kind of filling the space, you know, having the surround kind of fill the space out. So that's that's our goal. Um, we're going to be working on this for the next couple of weeks. So we'll keep on giving you updates during the show um, as we kind of uh, move forward. Uh, coming up in the rest of the uh, rest of the week, um, we have... Uh, 
Um, uh, tomorrow we're going to talk about video framing. So today we're talking about sound. Tomorrow we're going to talk about video framing uh, and what how to what it means and how do we use it to tell a story. So we'll be talking about video framing uh, tomorrow and how we use it. Also on Friday we'll be talking more nuts and bolts about carnets. How do we get our equipment in and out of every country? Um, this is something that usually when you get started it seems like a mystery and once you get used to it it's pretty obvious. But we're going to have boomerang actually come in. They're the they're the ones that I've used the most for that. Um, on Saturday we're going to be brainstorming accessibility. Um, so we, we, of course, we've had the last couple of weeks, we've had uh, deaf panelists, ASL, we've been talking about a lot of things all through the summer in, in accessibility. And, um, and so we're going to be brainstorming on where we go next. You know, what, what else do we want to add to our accessibility conversations? And of course, um, uh, Sunday is our day of introspection. So we, if you've got questions about uh, what we're doing in office hours uh, and, and what we're doing in this industry, um, that's the day to come and ask those questions. We don't put that out. We don't record it. We just kind of had to, it's an internal conversation amongst ourselves as best we can. Um, and also um, take a look at, at um, our announcements inside of Discord, uh, we, uh, we decided, you know, Twitter just put out communities yesterday and we were like, hey, what does this look like? And the best thing to do is just turn one on and see what happens. I guess it's not Twitter anymore, it's X. So I don't know, you know, in our, I don't know if we're going to use it. I don't know what, what it's going to look like, but we're researching it because that's what we do. <laughs> so, so we're researching what it looks like. There's probably 35 or 40 people that jumped in last night. Um, and I don't know what we're going to do, but if you want to jump in and be part of that, take a look for the link uh, in Discord. All right, we are jumping to our second hour, and I'm really, really excited to have Rob Bridget here. Uh, Rob Bridget is um, a British-Canadian audio director, mix supervisor, sound designer, and recordist based in Newfoundland. Uh, he has worked as an audio director in the games industry since 2001, Vendy Games, Activision, Blizzard, uh, Square Enix. Uh, PlayStation and Robert has become committed an advocate to sound in video games, and his new book is called Working with Sound. Welcome, Rob. Hey, Alex. Hey. How are you? Hey, great, good to, to, see great you. to see you again. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> good to see you again. Yeah, how did, yeah. You, how did you get into into game design or sound design for games? Um, it was quite a circuitous route, to be honest. It was um, I, I started off initially kind of studying cinema and studying film at university. And um, I did a I did a master's degree in sound for film over at Bournemouth University. Um, so my route was always, I think, in my head at that time, into cinema sound and you know sound design for films. And it just turned out that the course that I was on was a very collaborative sort of uh, course, very vocational course. And I shared a house as well with lots of animation students and did a lot of sound work for those students on their reels and things like that. And so got to know them very well. And a lot of those, a lot of those animators went into video games, into the games industry. And so as these things often happen, you know, all the, all the sort of reach outs and connections that I'd, that I'd heard about for jobs that were available to, uh, were actually through the video game side of things. So did so, you, did you yeah. do any cinema work or did you go straight into games? Um, I tried to get into film. I tried, you know, the, the route in was usually a runner, uh, you know, usually a, place in Soho or company in Soho and a lot of my colleagues from the film sound course did that route and then but yeah I, I didn't I didn't end up going or doing any film work <laughs> but I just went into straight into games which was actually looking back on it, it was sort of the at least at least for me it was the sort of perfect time to be there in that industry when things were 
and they still are very dynamic and they still are changing all the time. But I think even back then, it was quite a rarity to be hired as a sort of full-time sound designer on a video game team. And so essentially you had to create and, and make everything yourself, like the methods of playback, every, you know, the, the, the entire game engine had to be sort of developed, you know, from scratch in-house. So you were you were basically building the the tracks as you went along, like that sort of famous Wallace and Gromit uh, gif of of building the train tracks. It it, so it always felt like that. And yeah, I, I guess I guess it still does feel like that, yeah. <laughs> my, my, I was actually a sound designer. I designed sounds for a game in the early 90s. And um, oh, wow. I was, but, but when I say sound designer, I literally <laughs> made all the games at my desk. Like sat there and the, you know, yeah. the, the transportate, the transporter was like, and then I go in and I'd stretch it and move it around yeah. and, and, and stick it all in. But it was like, you know, everything was done at my desk for the, for one little game. Um, but, what was uh, your I, first game? What did you, what did you first? Uh, the very first title that I worked on was, uh, it was, it was an Xbox, the original Xbox. Title. Well, actually, no, it wasn't. That was the in-house stuff. I mean, previous to going in-house, I'd done. I worked at a small sort of post-production company, who were outsourced to, to do work on a on a video game. Right. But, you know, just the sound effects portion, and that was called Vanishing Point, and uh -huh. it was uh, it was a racing game uh, for the Dreamcast console. I don't know oh, if yeah. uh, you recall that, but that mm -hmm. was uh, yeah. So the, the the two game developers for that title came in. To the to the post production facility, and I was kind of the the new hire who had come from the course in Bournemouth, and it was it's like here's our sound designer. We we everyone else here is a composer. Here's the sound designer we've just hired, um, and then they just locked me in a room with with the development team, and we made all the user interface sounds together like live. Um, you know, we had we had the game running, so we could see what the sounds. The, the style, the visual style of the of the game as well. Um, so that was the first game that I worked on. But the first in-house um, role um, that I'd had was working on a game called Sudeki, S-U-D-E-K-I, mm -hmm. which was a sort of Japanese-style RPG. Um, but yeah, it was like an Xbox exclusive sort of original, the very first Xbox title. But yeah, that was, that was, I was working for a company called Climax Entertainment down on the South Coast in the UK. And they'd hired me to, you know, kind of, they, they'd heard, they'd heard a demo reel of some music that I'd done and right. it caught the ear of their game designer. But then I was sort of hired as their, Sound designer slash audio engineer slash audio director. I mean, the, the titles weren't even sort of figured out back then either. So <laughs> it was more like, what do you what do you want to be called um, when we when we sort of hire you? So I think I think I sort of settled on sound designer because of the the Walter Merch kind of definition of that, where you know it was it was sort of responsibility for the overall soundtrack, which was definitely what I was jumping into. But uh, yeah. <laughs> And what's the, so that's where you started. What was the last game you worked on? Uh, the last game I worked on that's been published would have probably been, yeah, it's probably Shadow of the Tomb Raider from, uh, from Eidos, Square Enix Control. So that's, so that, yeah, I mean, games take so long to develop that, you know, you can start working on something and then you won't see it sometimes if, you know, if you move to another, another gig, you might not see that title. It might never see the light of day, but it's, Three to five years is a typical sort of gestation period for a game these days. So, and is yeah. that three? And when you say three to five years, is that three to five years for the game, the sound design as well, or is are you a what part of that pipeline do you fit into? 
So I think that's one of the really fascinating areas uh, to talk about, actually, is which is where sound gets involved and how sound people integrate into game development teams. Um, because like I was sort of describing, coming from that sort of film post-production background and learning about sound through that lens, um, you know, it, it gives you this sort, sort of expectation that, you know, you're going to be handed things that are pretty much finished visually or <laughs> in terms of, I know you're laughing there now already, yeah. but yeah, we, we, we know the problems with that idea. Um, but the, I mean, I think that still still persists a little bit. That idea that you know you you want to you want to work on something from a sound perspective that's as close to finished as possible, so you can you can get the feeling of it and understand what it's about at the very end, and then be able to you know sort of come in and apply the sound to that. Whereas with with video games, because it's a software development environment. Uh, primarily, uh, well, and, and it's changing as well. The industry's sort of becoming more focused on entertainment as well. So it's more like software entertainment uh, these days. Um, but yeah, I think being involved right from day one on a project, from the concept phase of a of an initial idea, it's, it's a place that sound people aren't very familiar being, actually. And I think it's, it's one of the areas that I've learned a lot of like what to do and what not to do and even how to think about sound and try to uh try to insert it into the game development process earlier and earlier and more frequently and be able to be able to come up with a sort of um so that the whole team understands that sound is part of that process do, do you um, ever make requests in the game of visuals that would um that you know that would make a great sound um, yeah, that that sometimes happens. I mean, particularly with animation. I mean, I mean, this happens in cinema too, I believe. Mm -hmm. But um, I think it's if you do some pre-pro work or some early sound recording, perhaps of animals or of uh, you know creature voices, just to a concept sketch or or something like that, then that that sound work can influence and inspire animators as they're working and as they're sort of trying to find a, right. a cadence or a rhythm or. Because, because I think in the visual realm, sometimes it's really hard to work in time. Right. Whereas with what sound automatically brings is a sense of time and a sense of, you know, the, the sort of uh, cadence and uh, personality through that stuff. So I think it's some, something sound, early sound work is very inspirational, I think, for cross-discipline teams and to... You know, even just to be able to dream about a, a world that you're yeah. sort of creating um, and hear it. And yeah, do you, do you sometimes find time. yourself uh, like creating ambience for them? Like just an ambient, oh, yeah. some ambient things so they, while they're working, they can... Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I worked in I worked at uh, at Lucasfilm and and in, in the Star Wars art department and the guys would when we were working on the pod race, um, the modelers had P fifty one races going on. And it was, I guess they do them in Vegas or something like that. You just hear these yeah. 50 ones, you know, just to get them into the, into the mood. Yeah, to, to understand the energy and the, the excitement, I think, of, of what they're working on. I mean, that's a, that's a great tool and a great technique for, for sound to be able to participate in that creative process um, yeah. rather than be something that's sort of applied as a decoration at the end. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of scope to work early with teams and to sort of especially with creative directors and art directors i've i've had some some of the best sort of collaborative relationships i've had in video games have been through you know those kinds of uh, leaders and to sort of partner with them and explore the world together with them you know 
that's um that's that's very very satisfying and because it's so early there's no right. sort of there's no sort of wrong thing to do um you're you're all sort of exploring this these ideas together um and so yeah i found that just just having like two or three options of things where you're looking at a concept image or even if the creative director is just you know just sort of stood up in front of everyone and explained you know part of the story or uh, or something about the world or about the gameplay and about how it should feel um it's often great to go away with that inspiration quickly work on something or two or three different things over the course of maybe a few hours or a couple of days and then be able to sit the creative director down put on the headphones or listen in the theater together at some of those sketches right. and just get and just get a sort of a feel and sometimes the creative director will fall in love with it and be like yes this is this is beyond right. what i imagined it to be and that, or some, kind of or that might different. even drive the drive that scene right or drive that yeah, part of the game yeah yeah well i think early on you're working often away from the details of of something right mm -hmm. it's more it's, it's i found it very very high level very emotional uh more about feeling than about sort of you know details very very broad sort of brush strokes in a way so so being able to sort of supply some of that for the team and through music as well like bringing in composers a lot earlier to work in that same way you know try to come up with some some themes some ideas some textures some what, some feelings yeah when you get when you get you get brought on to a game <laughs> to work on it yeah. how do you where does it start like what what happens first um ideally it is those early concept phases where you are brought i mean you can be brought on at any point uh, really so like in the in tomb raider i was brought on very very early like in the in the to the tail end of the concept phase which was really really fantastic so i got to explore a lot of the the big sort of uh themes like fear and kind of loss and all these sort of things so getting to work at that level it's something that you know it once you've got it in the dna once you found the dna of that then you can carry that through to the details like all the way to the end of the project but you could you could equally be brought in at a sort of end of pre-production or uh, even later you know so it's things, right. things get more complex there. but the first the first sort of things to do at least from a creative standpoint are those those big sort of ideas but at the same time, you've got all the all the sort of technologies that you're going to use. All the you know, how are you going to play back sound in this game? What right. audio tools or middleware are you going to use, or are you going to write your own sort of way of doing that? And it's and it's and you've been a proponent of of the you know approaching it with surround and immersive audio and so on and so forth. And how do how do you build for that? You know, inside of a game, is that some that it seems like something you have to kind of decide you're going to do almost from the beginning. Yeah, um, it, it does help if you know that in advance, because I think it's, uh, it, it completely changes the way you think about, um, about how sound works in a game. Um, if it's, uh, well, Tomb Raider again is a great example because that, that particular Tomb Raider game was the third in the series. And we'd added like a vertical rope repel, uh, feature in that particular game. So, um verticality was suddenly this new thing that was important in that game so at, around around sort of late pre-production early production we uh, we managed to get dolby atmos working in the on the console and so this this was like okay this is this is fantastic <laughs> and we now mm -hmm. we now have overhead space to play with 
Um, and it's accessible to everyone because there's the headphone version of it as well. So we weren't too worried about, oh, this is just so going to be a feature a, you're for... using a binaural fold down for that? Yeah, I think that, yeah, that Dolby Atmos technology mm -hmm. um, does that for you. So essentially what we started doing was it was a lot of jungle environments in that game and a lot of sort of, you know, brute propelled down into spaces or up above. Right. We started to place sounds in 3D around the around the environment in the game engine just to sort of entice the player to to look right. up or, you know, think about what was above. Um, so, so that was really fundamental. And you talk a lot about leading with sound. In fact, you have a book called that. What does that, what does that mean? Um, it's, I think it's something that, everyone is is sort of looking for really because sound is traditionally i always think of it as just in the wake of the ship is always trying to catch up and is always trying to um you know is, is never sort of the decision maker often in the process and is always just sort of trying to fix things or you know <laughs> trying to <laughs> try, right. you know decisions that have been made up in the in the control room of the ship are affecting everything behind it so i think when you're on a project often it can feel like you're just sort of struggling and you know this whole thing that you'd worked on with the team for three months has now been cut and like so it's the, now you're doing something else it's, so there's big decisions happening all the time so right. i think this this for me the idea of leading with sound is Firstly, about trying to get into that room where these decisions are being made and right. to be able to, you know, understand that stuff and then be able to communicate that in a more effective way down to the sound team itself. But like, secondly, I think, yeah, leading with sound is about, as we talked, we'd sort of hinted at before that idea of post-production where things are kind of settled and you have a good foundation and you know, you know what you're working on. Um, there's so much sound work to do early in pre-production yeah. or, or prototyping on game features and things like that, that sound, sound people, I think, need to be working a lot more in those worlds and understanding what it is that they're trying to do, because it's a completely different way of working in a prototype sort of situation than right. it is to a, a final polished sort of product. So there's, there's certain, there's certain ways of looking at that work yeah. and, you know, like, um, yeah, sort of different expectations and different quality expectations at that right. level as well. And and the new book right now is called Working with Sound. And wh where does that take us? In in for uh, where, where did you go with this book? Yeah, Working with Sound. So I think that was more about the the changes that that came about because of the pandemic and like how we as as sort of game developers and sound designers were now in this more remote world or global world or have you and how's have that you, how's that worked for you i mean like we've moved yeah. to that because a lot of us you're this community is all yeah. remote <laughs> so yeah, we, yeah, yeah. we build this this whole the the show here i mean you you, you met some folks on the way through yeah. um the show is being edited by you know um you know a person somewhere else in the world uh yeah. the you know all of the stuff is happening is probably two or three continents at any given time for any yeah. every show every morning so we're kind of used to this but it must have been a huge shift as COVID hit because it happened pretty suddenly and and how did you adjust for that yeah, I think. Well, this is this is one of the interesting things. I think that audio folks, audio people, have over the last twenty years in game development have you know initially started in studios in kind of siloed spaces, right. away from the rest of the team. You know, because we're making sounds and noise all day, and we don't want to disturb people on the on the floor. Right. Um, 
which or have them know, disturb you like by getting anywhere near equally, you while you're recording equally is is terrible yeah. yeah however like the as as time has gone by i think like the sound people have come out of those rooms and realized that you know actually probably at least 33% of our day is more of a collaborative um part of the you know part of the process of working games so being able to sit with the design team uh, or sit in on those design meetings and throw out throw in ideas and and just sort of be part of the game development team is is a and now super, that it's virtualized yeah. how does it how are you doing it over zoom are you doing it over other tools how do you how do you make that work yeah exactly i mean it's uh it's the same thing but it's it's virtualized i mean in, in many ways it makes it a lot easier to have someone yeah. kind of sit with you at your desk and listen to something together yeah. um like if, if you know if you want to work with a creative director i guess the challenge is still trying to get the time of, of these people and you know sort of get that in there and moving meetings around and all that sort of stuff but um yeah, being able, knowing that they're listening on headphones is huge because previously it would be come to my desk, let's listen to something together, or let's let's book out the the mix room and listen to it there if it's something we really want to focus on. Um, so, and do you do you mostly yeah. build sound for games through for headsets? I mean, that's pretty much probably what the vast majority of users are. That's how they're enjoying the game. Yeah, totally. Um, it's definitely something we're always aware of, always thinking about is, you know, what's the what's the sort of most common like playback method, right. um, which has been one of the amazing things about the spatial audio sort of thing that's happened in the last, let's say, five to seven years. That's that sort of technology is really like exploded and it's kind of everywhere and everyone's doing their own sort of version of that. Um, but yeah, what that, I think what that brings to sort of headphone users is this, you know, pretty, pretty exciting sense of space and immersion, which you could only really previously have by sitting in a, in a pretty amazing room with a great home theater system. And right. there were, there were people out there, there were players out there who had those, those rooms for sure. But and all their they, neighbors knew when they were playing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, the whole street probably knew, actually. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. Courtney, you, you had a question? Yeah. Thanks for joining us, Rob. Um, I've always had some questions about you know, being involved in sound production and post production for years with, you know, standard uh, film and television. Uh, sound post production, you, you get a locked picture, so you know the timing of the sound effects that are needed and, and you know how to produce the sound effects that synchronize the picture. I was wondering how in gameplay, since it's variable, uh, you know, you can have things, three things blow up at one time or one thing blows up and, you know, uh, gunshots. How is synchronization handled when you're designing these sounds? Do you design for a specific sequence? Do they give you uh, a cut sequence or an edited sequence so that you know how fast a gun is going to fire or how fast something's going to, an explosion's going to take place and there's going to be glass clinkling down in different areas or, or not. Do you, do you work off of a pre-rendered animation to get the timing right or do you just uh, generate a lot of individual elements that are then synchronized by the render engine in the game? How's, how does synchronization work? That's my question. And yeah. I know, of course, there's lines, there's dialogue <laughs> lines that are pre-recorded that are synchronized. But other than yeah. that, the sound effects. Well, I think yeah, and it's and it's and it's quite complicated because of the iterative nature of game development. Um, I mean, essentially, the synchronization comes through firing off a sound event 
in the game engine. So in the same way that you would trigger an, an animation event, um, you would attach a, a sound event to that as well. So like play this particular kind of sound. Um, and that that's how it would be synchronized. You know, maybe it's on a button press, like a weapon firing or something like that. So the, the animation of the weapon fires and you have the sound as well. However, that's that's the very that's the really simple fundamental part of it. The the really difficult part is trying to keep up with the iteration cycle uh, because that first version of the of the gunshot that's gone in is is probably some kind of placeholder and that, we made that, the gun even bigger yeah yeah it's gonna get bigger for like a few month by month and then it's it's either gonna get cut completely or it's gonna suddenly suddenly fit into the scale of all the other weapons so it's always going to be changing um, or maybe the, you know, the look of the gun is now completely different. Like it has a lot more detail to it. And, it, you know, there are things happening on the weapon that are, that are sort of spring loaded yeah, mechanisms. And yeah. So, so you want to continually evolve that sound. Um, you, I'm sorry I, I to interrupt yeah, yeah. you. The, I was just wondering, do you layer, do you create a, a lot of different layers mm. so that you mix it up so that the sound, you don't hear a repetitive, the, you don't hear the same sound yeah. over and over again for each explosion so that it has, multiple layers that you can mix and match yes so it, it makes yeah. it much more varied. i mean yeah that's that's a more modern sort of way technique of of creating sound effects for games now in the last sort of 15 to 20 years i'd say previous to that it was more like a one shot one sound that played that was designed to, to sort of do everything whereas now like you said the layers are really really critical to that because uh, there could be distance involved in the sound so it could have detail layers that you only they're only audible when it's close to you or it could have you know a completely different sound when it's far away as well um but also like the the variety the randomization of different sounds to make it feel more natural and realistic i mean it will often create like for something as simple as a footstep or or a weapon shot like Either, either between 15 and 20 variations for every single one of those sort of sounds that, that plays. And and even within every layer, there could be that amount of variations as well. Do, do you find yeah. yourself wanting to go back and re-record? Like you, you've listened to them, you play the game, and then you've just decided that there's a couple of those footsteps or a couple of those gunshots you just have to go back and do again. Like you just like yeah, don't like these yeah. anymore. Yeah. Well, that's another thing. I mean, you're continually reviewing this stuff, like either with the director team or with or right. with your audio team. So there's always the opportunity to go in there and tweak something and change something, which is which is dangerous, but also very very um, <laughs> helpful. Let's say. So yeah, I mean, uh, one one way I think I'm, I'd be good to just talk you through uh, this sort of uh, image here. Yeah. Uh, hopefully you can see that but this is um this is sort of a way of thinking about the layers the different sort of passes on sound that we'll oh, wow. tend to do mm -hmm. and so we, it's it's a simple it's a simple l scale effectively so it's sort of you know l0 is just a concept thing that you're working on offline outside the game engine um, but once you're inside that game engine and working on sounds and you know, placing sounds in the game and triggering them um you, you sort of need some need to set expectations about what the quality is going to be on those different sections. So an L1 pass for us is just a very bare basic functionality. Um, you know, it's just to give the player or the person who's testing the game or designing that feature some basic feedback. Like, okay, I press the trigger, the, I hear the weapon shooting sound. 
that's great feed, that's positive feedback, or you know, maybe there's some negative feedback that I need. Do you start uh, a lot yeah. with those like an L1 of taking stuff from your library or other libraries, just throwing things in rather than spending a lot of time on them? Yeah, exactly. The the most important part about that L1 phase is is velocity, it's speed. Right. So so get something in very like this is almost a prototyping stage of game features. So they're not going to look amazing either, which is good. <laughs> right. <laughs> they might not sound like fantastic. Um and so yeah, like the speed at which you can get things in, just test it out right. and then review it together with the team and it's like, oh, okay, you know, this uh, this feels this feels too big or this feels too small or the rhythm's kind of weird on this. Uh, we can we can play with those sort of elements, those feedback elements in this L1 phase. And like I said, like a lot of the prototyping that happens in games, this this stuff will just get continually thrown out until we find something that really works well and feels like super fun on on the sticks and it feels it feels good so once once that magic starts to coalesce <laughs> the feature kind of gets a you know like the prototype becomes a bit more solid and it becomes uh sort of signed off and approved and then you, then you're kind of safe to move into this l2 phase from a sound point of view where you can right. really focus then on the identity so it's not as much about the library stuff anymore the generic stuff it's more like okay what is this what does the character sound like what is what is what is the, the feel of this and you might have already done a lot of that work in l0 like in the concept phase so you may have some style guides and some examples of stuff there um, but yeah l2 is essentially where you know if you're working on a star wars game that's where the lightsabers are going to come in and the iconic sort of sounds or if it's a new ip that you're developing those are the kind of iconic sounds you want to try and get in there at that stage like i said it's still we're still in flux there's still stuff changing here so we don't want to polish it yet but we just right. want to get the get the real sort of feel to it and then so that's what what gets you to the, the sort of l3 which is the shippable the shippable stage basically so that's the polish pass that's where you know all the features are starting to become properly locked down these these are the bits that we know are going to be in the game and so that's where you're, you're really shifting your attention onto all those layers and all that detail um you know and just being able to spend as much time reviewing and polishing that stuff as possible and then the l4 is really about it's a very very tiny amount of time at the end of a project um where you know the rest of the team is kind of left the building and you're it's, it, the game might even be on the disc at this point so the mix right. might not even make it onto the the disc that you that you buy in the store the mix might be something that comes through a day one patch or a day zero patch um, because it's a small amount of data, essentially, you know, different levels and things like that. So that is the kind of only That's real great. post bit that um, that we tend to tend to do. So, so yeah, those those sort of L levels help us to, you know, take the pressure off that quality needing to be there in the earliest days as well because i think as sound designers we all want to do amazing work and we want it to sound fantastic all the time however if you're pushing to get like a sound with feedback and with identity and with polish on a gray block prototype um that that's a lot of work you've got to throw away you know so it's so again it's about trying to trying to move as fast as possible and set expectations very early on for that stuff. Let's jump into the questions from our uh, producers. First one comes from JJ McKenna in San Rafael, California. How much game sound is created within the industry versus getting outside contractors and specialists who are professionals? 
Ah, so you're like from internal teams who are employed at game developers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And well, it's a very, very healthy ecosystem, I would say, because um, most of what, mostly there's a, a sound designer or a sound team or audio director in-house uh, employed full-time as part of a, a game development team, um, usually on each project that's being that's being done at that, uh, at that company. So there are, I'd, I'd say then, generally tend not to be massive teams um but you know they're, they're there for those early pre-production concepts and most of production i think what tends to happen is um production and this, and this is on very big triple a sort of projects that i'm talking about here um will tend to bring in um like teams of vendors or contractors to sort of help out and, and beef the team up kind of in production and late production just to get all the content done and so in the sort of end of l2 to l3 stages that's where the team will grow usually quite dynamically and and that's often through contractors and vendors and um, so i i think there's a really good balance of these different sort of um ways of working yeah next question mickey makachor in manila in the philippines up next how has developing and designing in atmos changed your workflow compared to 5.1 or 7.1 is it the same amount of work but with more creative freedom or is there much additional work required i would say it's integrating atmos at this point in time is fairly seamless it's fairly easy to do um it's mostly handled by the audio the middleware audio middleware such as like audio kinetics wise uh, is a very popular uh, audio middleware solution and essentially it's a matter of setting the output to atmos in in, in that sense but yeah basically it's the same way as handling you, you still have place sound objects in 3D in the in the environment in the game engine and those you know as you move the camera around and uh, the the sounds are panned automatically depending on that what Atmos actually brings to the table and and other sort of 3D audio technologies bring to the table is this the sense of overhead um, um space which i think in games is really interesting because you can you can actually have sounds off-screen sounds that are above the player or behind the player that don't distract the player in the same way that they may distract an audience uh, in a in a sort of cinema um, i always remember that the old adage of not playing a sound that's too distracting in the surrounds or the overheads in a theater just because the, the audience is going to look around and see if they could see what caused the sound and they'll see you know don't look at the exit sign i think was the the sort of uh, idea behind that but with with games and players and that audience they're very 3d native so if they hear a sound above them they're going to move the camera and look at what caused the the sound or they're going to spin around in the game and see what see what's behind them so it's a there's a whole different sort of uh, 3d aware audience that you can really play with so you can put a lot of enticers in 3d space um, but yeah, like I was saying, I think spectacle is another one of those things where that overhead height can be really, really uh, fantastic um, in a mix, uh, in a particular moment in a game where you sort of su suspend and break the usual rules and just sort of do something special and spectacular in the overhead. So I think that's really great. So it's, it's difficult as well because I think you have to balance 3d sound all the time if, you, if you're using overheads all the time you're using that space continuously uh, it does tend to 
become kind of ordinary after a while. If you've been, been in that world, you've been playing that game for a while, it becomes kind of normal. So I, I still look at it as a very, uh, a place where you want to do special things and just sort of remind the player how, how fantastic that, uh, that um, experience is. Next question. JJ McKenna in San Rafael, California is up next. He says, how much compression is required for objects not within earshot? And he references not Schrodinger's cat, but Schrodinger's falling tree. How much compression? Uh, well, there's two kinds of compression. There's the compressed size of the file, or there's the, you know, the sort of runtime compression. I, I, I'll, I guess I'll talk about both. Um, yeah, I'm essentially sounds that aren't are, are ready to play but aren't playing yet which are kind of on the periphery of your of your 3d kind of world um those those basically become virtual voices so they're they're, they're sounds that are ready to play but they're not playing anything yet and as you approach those sounds uh they they basically get loaded and turned on and then they, they the volume starts to increase so that it's a lot of that streaming is handled in the in the audio engine with the with the sort of audio uh, the audio programmers take care of a lot of that stuff and ensure that that all scales nicely. Um, but obviously, there occasionally there's very very distant sounds like huge explosions that you wanna you wanna hear and you want to be audible. So those are those are quite special cases where you know and maybe that is more low frequency sound as well. I guess, I guess with compression, or this file size compression, it's not really a, a problem anymore because we have these very sophisticated loading and streaming technologies that, you know, can can essentially handle all the sound uh, coming in and out. I mean, twenty years ago, you couldn't do that uh, because you were streaming the thing off a disc, which had a very limited streaming bandwidth. Whereas now, essentially, every every sound is installed on the SSD and ready to play. So. Um, yeah. Do you find yourself compressing the the audio itself to make it more present? You know, not not so much file compression, but just uh... right. Um, there's, I think there's a, there's a case to be made for some mild compression, mm-hmm. um, purely because I, I think too much dynamic range um, can be a, can be a problem because it's, especially in games. Um, because like very, very quiet moments. They, I mean, you could be in an open world style game, you could be just exploring a very quiet area of the game for quite a long time. And you'd probably adjust your volume at home according to that. And then and then you're gonna go into a combat sequence, which is, you know, <laughs> gonna tear the tear the roof right. off. So I think there's a good care. And often what we'll do is we'll have a, an audio option in the menu, audio menu, which is essentially like a dynamic range or three preset dynamic range settings where it's like high dynamic range, which is more for home theaters. So you get that, you know, you have a good sort of, I guess, somewhere like around a 15 LU loudness range, LRA. Right. Um, but I think, I think when you're on headphones or when you play more quietly, I think that's, that feels better around a 12 sort of LRA loudness range. So, and again, that compression, if it's added, is is added on a, a kind of master bus um, at the very end of the chain. Of course, you can have uh, compression at any node within your bus structure. So right. you could have you could have a particular flavor of compression on dialogue or even on a particular character within the within the dialogue sort of busing structure. So. Yeah, it, it, there's a lot of complexity there, actually. 
And is the busing structure in a game similar to a mixer? I mean, is it is it do you have a multiple a series of buses that these are all running on and positions? Or how does that how does that? Yeah, fit in? I would say every game sets it up completely differently because you know right. you want to control different groups of sounds for for different titles. Like a, a first person shooter would have really different mix criteria to like a you know two D platformer game right. or a mobile game or something like that. Um, so you can essentially set up the bus structure however you want. I mean, normally it'll be a master bus with like VO, um, SFX and music and then sub bus, sub bus groups for every category underneath right. that. Um, so you could have like NPC characters underneath the, the dialogue bus or you could have like the player character. Um, you could have like barks and, you know, just sort of shout outs for combat from enemies as a separate bus and very important lines of dialogue, like story dialogue could be a separate bus category as well. And the reason to do that is just so that you can, uh, decide to turn one category of sound down and get it out of the way when right. another category plays. So there's a real, there's a real, you know, deck of cards, uh, sorry, like stack of cards sort of thing where everything's interrelated and there's a lot of complexity there with the mix for sure. Absolutely, um, yeah. Uh, Courtney? Yeah, I was going to ask if the acoustical environment is uh, rendered by the game engine at the last minute. So you do you create the sound effects dry and then let the uh, uh, render engine, or the, the audio render engine, uh, render the acoustics by applying echo or reverb? Uh, depending upon the you know the the location that you're in, if you're in a cave or in a d abandoned cityscape or out in the desert, it would apply different levels of uh, reverberation. Uh, would apply depending upon I, I assume uh, your position in the game. Uh, so that do you create all the sound effects dry? Really, is that the question? Uh, and yeah. Let the render engine calculate the environment and then position as far as in uh, you know. Uh, Dolby Atmos or so. Yeah, any any category of sound which is going to be like happening throughout the game in multiple locations in a in a three D game is is always going to be dry, and it's, and you know you're going to apply you're going to create volumes in the game engine um, for a particular space that has a particular reverb zone in it, and that's essentially what you're going to move between as you go through the different environments. So the the reverbs are going to be applied at runtime for those sounds. However, if you you know if you have like a one-off sound that's like a distant a distant triggered sound that's always going to be distant and it's always going to be far away, like some distant explosion, you want to hear that bouncing off uh, the environment. We always know the context in which it's going to occur. That that can often be baked in to the sound file itself. So it's still a, still definitely a hybrid of those two approaches. Um, yeah. Next question. Next one comes to us from Mickey Makachor again in the Philippines. In the film world, there are many compromises that have to be made to make things work when going from surround down to the stereo mix. In the gaming world, what do you find is the most difficult compromises to make and elements to cut? That's a great question, yeah. I mean, it's we have so many different endpoints in video games. There's, you know, like there's uh, ambisonic output, uh, there's uh, the Dolby Atmos 714, sort of channel-based output. Um, there's the stereo down mix 5171. Um, it, it's just endless. And, the, and then on different platforms, there's lots of different um, options as well. So you could have different endpoints on a PC 
Um, a PlayStation console could be different from an Xbox console. Uh, Nintendo Switch, very different again. So I think ideally what we're looking for is to mix and create the the sound the mix for the game at the highest possible available uh, resolution and to have that sort of idea of a mezzanine format that does fold down very nicely as you go as you go down into the stereo mix and so on um however there there are a lot of sometimes you find these sort of strange rules in there some sometimes like some down mix or something is done differently on a different platform so we'll, we'll find we'll find a problem with that usually just through listening to it and then dig into the dig into the code and find out what's going on with that with that mix down and often we have to compensate for that uh sometimes so it's getting better like um the fold downs and mix downs are generally starting to follow pretty predictable rules now so um again like ideally it's we mix in a in the highest possible sort of listening format together um and then we're able to check things on headphones and check things on you know, on a stereo sort of uh, system or even on a TV speaker, just to make sure that the experience is still coming across, even though it doesn't have that those additional sort of speakers. Next question. Peter Moore in Auckland, New Zealand said, how hard is it to put retro sounds from games like Galaga or Gyrus into new games uh, with respect to copyright? Is there an open source library with Creative Commons licenses or the like, or do you have to pay royalties or maybe both? Yeah, uh, I would. I do not know the answer to this, but I would have to guess. Uh, stay. I would stay away from it, legally speaking. Or I would, you know, if it's something you had to do because you were, you know, it was. Uh, it was. It, you were remaking Space Invaders. You probably have the license for that anyway, so you'd be talking to the to the license holder, or you'd be having those conversations at some point, or you'd be trying to get get a new sound or design a new sound that sort of had a, an essence or a flavor of that original and Even in some ways that that gives you a lot more you know uh, yeah. uh you can go a lot more places with it when it was created back then you know i i think yeah. there's a new interactive space invaders that i haven't gotten yeah, to download yeah. yet yeah, that, yeah, that, there is <laughs> yeah. uh, but yeah the sound on that i think is completely different to yeah because the, the game is completely different yeah. um but yeah like some essence of the original is going to be necessary i think for those players who remember that you remember how they felt when they first played those games for sure but yeah i would i would generally try and avoid just grabbing sounds from the internet because you don't know where they're really from or who really owns the the the, yeah. the copyright on those things next question Next one comes from J.J. McKenna in San Rafael, California. Is there any coding required by sound producers to attach the audio to character movements specifically? Um, yes, there usually is a lot of code, a lot of systems that are developed um, on that side of things. Again, like usually, the great thing about video games is that you're working as part of a team, so you don't necessarily have to learn how to do absolutely everything yourself. Uh, unless you are creating a, a game sort of from scratch on your own, um, but yeah, usually you'll uh, you'll come up with that idea of what if we what if we just attach sound to a, an elbow movement or elbow velocity, and we you know instead of instead of having to tag every single animation, we just switch it on and it and it generates the sound for us. Um, you you would basically get explain that to a to an audio programmer or a programmer, and you know, do some do some sort of prototypes of what you're looking to to change, like the volume and the and the sort of pitch maybe a little bit. You could mock that up in a 
in a DAW and sort of explain the concept. And then you could sort of move that to a to a runtime sort of prototype where the sound, like maybe it's a Foley sound that's continually playing, but as the elbow moves, the volume goes up and down based on the velocity of the elbow or whatever it is. So again, like I think collaborating with teams is is fundamental to game development. And I think those kinds of ideas when they pop up, it's not something you need to learn to do necessarily yourself, but you can excitedly run into the, the programmer's office or, or Zoom window and explain what you're after and they should be able to help you with that. Next question. Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado asks, is there an audio version of motion blur sound in the player view over time, possibly in the form of an impulse response, maybe a measure of player injury or something like that? Hmm. Uh, might, yeah, I mean, uh, I think modifying, modifying sound at runtime is something that happens in every, in every game engine. I mean, it's all done in very different ways. It's not a particular technique or a particular software that does that um but yeah being able to being able to foreground certain categories of sound or filter them out um you know like low health is a, that perfect example right where you're you know you're you're about to die you're on you just you're just about to take the last bullet but you so you're going to filter out all the ambient sound all the ambient background sound you're going to put a, a low pass filter so that, on that. that kind of that kind of is like the the buses that you're talking about that yeah. allows you to yeah, take yeah. those and affect those as your health so, is going down yeah and maybe the character's breathing isn't affected like that so it becomes more prominent and you can add some delay to that as well in that specific moment so once you really once you know what state you want to do something in you can have that as long as that state is triggered at low health you know health reaches a certain point trigger this state you can do a lot of crazy stuff to the to the different categories of audio at runtime at that point. So yeah, you can you can make things really clear or pop out of the mix. You can make things really muddy and distant. Uh, any kind of audio processing that you can do, sort of on the plugin sort of side, you can pretty much do at runtime. So yeah, that's the, there's a lot of scope for that that sort of stuff in those moments. Yeah. Next question. Douglas Carmichael asks, for someone with experience with audio productions and who is detail-oriented in their way of thinking, how can one enter the game sound industry? Yeah, enter. That's, a, that's always a tricky the, the, topic. The perennial question. How do I get in? <laughs> yeah, how do I get out is, is, a, is a, good, a good one to answer. Um, <laughs> that's the next one. That like, yeah, that's the next one. Versus um, how do I get in, then it's how do I yeah. stay in, and then it's in. how do I get out. I can't leave. I can't do anything else. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, it's, uh, uh, the, the biggest, the best advice I can sort of give is this idea of, because, you know, because game development isn't all about, it's not all about one particular thing. It's quite a generalist skill set, I would say, is needed. Uh, it's a very collaborative and very iterative um you know, way of working, a way of making things. So I think I think those L levels I showed earlier to your detail oriented piece of your brain is gonna be it's gonna be really lit up in every one of those places because there's there are different things to think about uh, in each one of those areas. Um however I'd say essentially thinking about and I'm gonna just show another slide really quickly here is oops. Yeah, here we go. Uh, just share screen. Uh, so you should be able to see this. This is this is essentially how and it's from a quote from Randy Tom, where he was asked about 
what's the typical working day like for a, for a sound designer? And, you know, he said it was essentially 33% creative, 33% like technical or craft. And then th the other 33% is like collaborative and interacting with, with other disciplines. So for me, that was like, I have to visualize this. Uh, this is like a way of, a really perfect way of summing up how we work in video games. So you're going to spend, you, maybe you, you develop this technical sort of, aspect first as a as a as a way of doing things and making things happen um because you, you know the creative part is is great to develop as you go because i think once you get ideas you have to be able to put them on screen you have to be able to you know um uh make you know to actually do the technical work to put that stuff on screen and then the collaborative part is something you're going to you're going to be continually throwing out ideas, listening to other people's ideas, trying those out, um, presenting them. Um, those are those are skills. This is the sort of ideal generalist skill set, I think. So, um, any project that you can work on that, that sort of has a balance of these things, I think that's super valuable to talk about whenever you interact with people who might be, you know, a gatekeeper or someone in an interview. I think those are the sort of things that we're looking for, really, because there's so many, like, really amazingly gifted technical people out there, particularly in the sound world, who, you know, really have trouble when it comes to collaborating or really, you know, um, aren't quite as uh, ready with creative ideas or, or the ability to throw that stuff out there. So they're, um, I think I'd say basing, basing your skill sets on these three things is probably a, a good idea for, for the games industry specifically. Good, Courtney. Now, relating to the skill set question, I was wondering, you know, how much of your work consists of actually going out with a recorder in the field and recording actual sounds, and how much of it is just uh, editorial work of taking existing library sounds and modifying them, and then how much of your work is synthesizing sounds, you know, creating sounds from scratch with synthesizers or some other uh, device, electronic device, to create the sound, uh, original sound, and then modify it. Yeah, I think does it involve all of those it, it, skills? It, it, it can do, yeah, and it often does. Uh, I think it, it really depends on the project that you're working on. If it's more of a sci-fi type thing, then of course you're going to lean more into that synthesis realm of you know creating a sound world. You know, you might spend a lot of time. That's where you create and generate the sound source. Um, if it's something, you know, the Tomb Raider game I mentioned before was set in South American sort of jungle, um, you needed the, the actual source sounds of those exact like birds and howler monkeys and things like that to make that jungle feel like it was the actual place that you were putting on screen. So I didn't go to the jungle. I was, I, I sort of committed. I, 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 would, I would have told them, I'm sorry, I'm the only one that can do this. Yeah. I, I have to be able yeah, to yeah. hear it while I'm doing it. Well, no, yeah, I, that's I, what I, I wondered. Do you, yeah. are there a certain group of people you production sound, you hire production sound recorders to go out and get yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, exactly. ambient sounds for you? Yeah. Or does one person a lot of times bounce between editorial and production yeah. recording? It, it does happen in any of those things. Like if, if you're a particular kind of audio director, for example, or sound designer who's, who's really wants to go to this location and wants to, record those sounds and hear what it's like and feel what it's like, uh, probably more importantly to feel what it's like. Um, and uh, as much as gathering references to sort of understand 
like you know what what does what does dusk feel like in this jungle environment or how do sounds change over time so i think that's more important to bring back to something like a game because then you can you can turn those into systems and play the play the right sounds based on that but yeah i mean sound recording it it, it can be a big part of it because you want to get authenticity um in a particular in a particular game for sure but then but then there's the editorial part of course and all the uh categorization often you're building libraries um for a particular project as well um so you know that could be location-based stuff or it could be foley-based stuff that's done in a studio it could be a, a whole physics collision system that you need all different impacts on different surfaces uh to account for different objects being moved around so you'd want to record all that content um, and then and then edit it and categorize it and have it play back in a in a systemic way. So yeah, I mean the the exciting part is there you can kind of do a bit of everything really. Yeah. Next question. Mickey Macachort back from the Philippines. I don't want to start a religious discussion here, he notes, but in your opinion, how many footstep samples are sufficient for each primary character per surface? <laughs> right. Um <laughs> Yeah, I, it's, it's, take, take your pick. I mean, it's, it's definitely more than 10 for me. It's a, like, I, I think anytime you notice one of those repeating steps, that it sort of breaks the, it breaks the immersion, I think. Um, footsteps are very hard to get right because I think the more variety you can have in there, the, the better, honestly, just the, just the more organic. Because the, the sounds that are going to go, you're going to hear it from the beginning of the game to the end of the game. No matter right. no matter what bit of the game you're in, you're probably going to be hearing those character footsteps. So you're probably going to invest a lot more time into the amount of content, the variety that's happening there than you are for like a specific, you know, enemy that occurs at a particular level, um, like further on down the game, uh, down in the game. So, yeah, as as I I would go I would go pretty high on those footstep numbers. Just to just to avoid that one, that one clop sound that you know, every, it, it just it just keeps bugging you. That's another great thing about working on these things for a long time because things bug you over those three to five years. Yeah. <laughs> <You're> like, <laughs> I can't think that. And and yeah. it seems like the the dynamic range has to be you have to be kind of careful of because yeah. I know when we're doing visuals, when I look at a texture, I go, oh, I can't have that pattern in there because you'll just see it, you yeah. know, uh, repeating. And I guess audio in some ways is the same. Oh, totally. Yeah. And, you know, like those, those bus categorizations, getting the character footsteps slightly out of the way when some things are happening as well. Yeah. Um, and then I, I guess transients in footsteps, transient sounds, right. the, the, the initial attack sound can be quite, can become quite harsh. And, and if you're turning things down, you still hear that. You still hear right. only that transient sound and you lose the sort of the detail and the character of the body of the sound. So, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of that stuff you've got to play with and continually adapt and and until they take you off the project and say you can't right. work on you it. Never, we, we often say <laughs> in visual effects we often say you never finish a shot, you just run out of time. Yeah, you just you just get <laughs> it taken off it. Yeah. <laughs> next question. Yeah. Uh, next question is actually mine. I, I was wondering, Movie Sound is famous for working with temp tracks, including music and effects, sound effects. Do you use a similar process in game sound design? Do you temp things before you do them? Um, I think a lot of that temp stuff can can happen in the concept phase where you work, you know, you're not really working in the game engine. You're just working on sort of movie renders and 
ripomatic things just to sort of get an idea of uh, this is the tone maybe we're thinking for this title so we'll, you know and you'll find a piece of music from something else that sort of gives you gets you in the in the ballpark of that world so i've seen that used quite a lot in pre uh, concept phase um but then like i said as soon as you start to get into that um on screen world like uh, it's it's about just putting in sounds maybe it's from a library or uh, put, putting stuff in very quickly uh, just to sort of get a feel for it again like grabbing a temp sound a temp piece of music um at the very end of like a major milestone just to get it to, to feel the way that the, the director sort of has in their in their minds can happen it is very dangerous to do that just in the same way it's dangerous to do that uh, in linear media because of the 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 love that can happen you know once once you've once you've met that milestone and it's like ah oh, this this is it and then you know unfortunately that can then be given as instructions to a composer or like we want it to feel like this piece of music um one thing i i started doing uh, fairly recently was just to try and try and bring in the composer early enough that they can essentially create temp tracks themselves but they're new they're new original compositions they're kind of at the l1 l2 stage for music um but it's it's music that you can fall in love with that is original and you own it and the actual composer's already has written it anyway so it's it's more it's more of a collaborative process that way so i, th I think the i think i'd i'd always not always because sometimes the temp thing is is the way of getting to something very quickly um but yeah, I mean, the audience for these things is, is pretty slim and pretty low for temp work. I mean, it's only going to be seen by a few people. So yeah, rip that Band-Aid off as soon as possible. <laughs> uh, last last question. Last question comes from Mickey McAture again in the Philippines. Do you use game sound engines such as WIs or FMOD? Would you recommend developing with them or rolling your own? Ah, um, well, I mean, yeah, sort of middleware game audio middleware engines have been around for quite a while now. So, you know, maybe we're talking about 15 to 20 years, maybe longer in FMOD's case. Um, so, you know, they're very, they're quite enriched at this point. They, they have a lot of features and there's, there's probably features in both of those middlewares that, you know, you, you may Which not, do you see you might not even use. Which do I see the most often? It's usually, uh, audio kinetics wise that I come across the most often. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, they, they're fully featured. They, they kind of do everything you need them to do at this point. Again, if you're, if you're really out there and creating something that's like a game, that's not really been made before and is doing something really different, then you probably work the work closer to the, to the code. And so you'd probably, you probably want to, either write your own layer, uh, abstraction layer of audio engine in there. I mean, if you're, if you're doing a lot of runtime audio manipulation um, for whatever reason, then it may be better to do that kind of stuff. Like, but again, this is uh, the audio engines a big, it's a big responsibility. You've got, it's got to be supported and it's got to have, you know, pretty, pretty sizable tech teams to support that stuff. So. And right. it's, a, it's a big thing to do. I mean, like 15 years ago or 20 years ago, most big companies had their own, you know, proprietary audio engines. Um, it's kind of like a, a sort of first wave of, of audio technology, really. 
And then audio middleware became very ubiquitous, sort of like a, a second wave. And now I think we're in this sort of third wave of programmers building things in between the audio engine and the game engine just to do something specific. So, right. you know, just like sort of, you know, um, the bits between the bits almost, um, pipelines that are, that are very custom within one particular company um, that are basically using or, you know, using that sort of middleware as a, as a starting point. Rob, thanks so much for your time. Just thanks, really, Alex. Yeah, such a, it's such a, a pleasure to have you here. <laughs> well, it's great. Yeah, um, I'm so glad you uh, reached out. This is yeah. this has been great. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. A fantastic hour. So it's just this has been really. I mean, I just feel like I mean, it's just really great when we're talking to someone who's really a practitioner who's been in this for a long time and just it's not theory. It's just this is the way it looks like for for us. It's just this just is the fantastic. way. Yeah, yeah this is the way. <laughs> this is the way. And uh, for everyone, uh, Rob's uh, Rob's book, Working with Sound, is a great book. I, I, I'm not all the way through it yet, but I've been I've been reading it as we got as, as we came to this. Just really, really good read. I think that especially as an overview for all the different aspects that are coming together and from remote production to the things that you're going to deal with. Um, you know, it's just a great overview of understanding what, what it's going to take. You know, it's not really the technical of this is how we do every layer. It's really just understanding what the, what the process is. And, um, it's a really, really great book. So, so, um, it's, I would highly recommend it, uh, working with sound again with Rob Bridget. And thanks to our producers for all the great questions. Kept us all rolling through here. Uh, thanks to our panelists. Can't do this without you. And thanks to the incredible team, uh, that the small village that stands up every day to make sure that this uh, show happens. Uh, we have the development team that's building how this show actually gets created. Uh, we've got the we've got our management team that figures out who's going to who's going to show up and make sure that they're ready. And of course, the production team that's getting this done every single day and we really appreciate your contribution uh we traveled 117,000 miles 188,000 kilometers today and that equates to 929 million bananas for scale all right let's go ahead and jump into after hours that was so good that was really good great day thank you yeah. Rob. it's one of our one of our best hours it was really Is good that banana sound like <laughs> It's a different different room than the last time I saw you, Rob. I think it's much it more is different. Yeah, we we've moved. That's great. <laughs> I was in Montreal before. <laughs> so much more room now. <laughs> yeah, I know. Less books. <laughs> that was a good. It was a good set, though. It was a very good set oh, yeah. for that. Oh, yeah. For that shoot. Yeah, exactly. But you'd have a lot of depth now. You'd be able to. Yeah, it's good. Thanks. Thanks again. To take some time nice. off and put those pictures nice, yeah. in. Yeah, I've been meaning to do that. Um, it's difficult on these kind of walls, though. They're, they're the wrong angle. 